This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. To crawl space. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios on Halloween. What's up, Lance? Ooh, what's going on? Feels good to be here. I love Halloween. You love Halloween. One of our favorite holidays of of the year, and it's uh, it's good to be here, nestled in the Crawl Space Studios on this on this fine holiday. It is, and uh, we have a really fun episode, and uh, we finally get to say fun and not feel bad about it uh, because we're talking about ghosts today with uh, Mike Brown of the Pleasing Terrors podcast. He also uh, hosts a ghost tour down in South Carolina, Charleston to be more specific. And so we have a really kind of just a fun conversation about ghosts and we hear some stories from him. And uh, I, I particularly really enjoy talking about this stuff because it's a little bit lighter than the stuff we normally talk about. Yeah, and it's cool to have someone like Mike on who is so steeped in the history, you know, being from Charleston, South Carolina and operating those those ghost tours. So he he really is a natural storyteller. Uh, if you haven't listened to Pleasing Terrors, do so. It's a really, really good piece of uh, entertainment uh, as far as a podcast is, is concerned. He tells a great story. He's historical uh, and he and he, he wraps you up in the story. And it's actually uh, really funny. He, he reveals what he would like to be in the afterlife, which is um, something that made uh, you and I laugh when we when we listened to it again. I didn't realize how funny it was until we listened to it uh, for the second time. <laughs> yeah, a lot of good laughs, actually, in this one. And uh, it's just kind of uh, just again, just kind of light and just kind of a fun conversation. So I hope you can uh, enjoy it as well, whether you believe in ghosts or not. Uh, the stories are still compelling, and you know that's what we're all here for anyway. Yeah, just have fun with it. It's Halloween. It's time to put your beliefs to the side, and you know, like they say, suspend your uh, what is it called? Disbelief. Suspension of disbelief. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and you know, get into the spirit a little bit. Enjoy the holiday. Exactly. <laughs> And before we throw it to the interview, we just wanted to mention that our documentary called Finding Maura Murray is now on Amazon Prime. So check it out. It does cost a bit, uh, just a couple of bucks per episode. We have four episodes up there now, but uh, it's getting some pretty interesting buzz and uh, people are enjoying it. 
yeah, it's been pretty fun to read the comments on each episode. And it's been great to see how many people have downloaded the movie and know that 10% of that download fee is going to the GoFundMe for Maura Murray. And that GoFundMe money goes towards any searches or uh, billboards or expenses for people who do boots on the ground. Uh, For example, search dogs or GPR technology. So that's all kept in a reserve fund. And 10% of the download fee for Finding Maura Murray goes to that. So by watching, you are directly contributing. So thank you for that. And make sure you check us out on Patreon. We have a new format going there, and it's going to be very entertaining. That is patreon.com slash crawlspacepodcast. Yeah, you want to check it out. Uh, we're doing some interesting stuff over there at Patreon, and we're going to start a true crime variety half hour, which uh, might be as weird as it sounds. So check it out over there on Patreon. It will, Tim, be exactly as weird as it sounds. <laughs> true crime variety show. Okay, so uh, we hope you enjoy this episode as as much as we enjoyed recording it. Thank you very much, and please follow us on Twitter at CrawlspacePod. We're on Instagram and Facebook at Crawlspace Podcast. Thank you. Welcome to Crawl Space, Mike Brown of Pleasing Terrors. How are you, Mike? Fine. Thank you for having me on the show. Of course. Happy Halloween. You too. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show, Mike. Uh, we met formally at CrimeCon in Indianapolis. Yep. That was yes. fun. CrimeCon 2017. And astute listeners of Crawl Space may remember your brief appearance on Crawl Space back in June of 2017. Yes. <laughs> Clearly very memorable for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you didn't go to CrimeCon this past year, right? No. Um, unf- I, was, I was looking forward to going, but unfortunately I was in a car accident. What? Was uh, homebound for a few months after that. Are you okay? What happened? Well, I was, uh, it's sort of a creepy story, possibly. Uh Uh-oh. When I did an episode where I went into this place called the Old City Jail with a couple of listeners to my show, and we took a Ouija board in there, and it's considered to be the most haunted place in Charleston. And uh, we had a lot of people warning us that we shouldn't do it and that something bad would happen to us if we did it. And we just sort of dismissed all that and said, whatever. And then the very next weekend, uh, which was the weekend before CrimeCon, I drove to Louisville, Kentucky to do a live show for the podcast. And I took the Ouija board with me and had it on a stand and told the story. And the next day, uh, Sunday, April 29th, I was driving back to Charleston and I was in the mountains of North Carolina, about 15 miles north of Asheville on this little mountain road at about four o'clock in the afternoon and the Ouija board is in the trunk of my car and I'm driving and uh, all of a sudden in the oncoming lane, this SUV just veers into my lane and hits me head on. Oh my God. What? And uh, destroyed my car, broke my collarbone in three places among a number of other injuries. It it took, it took me a few months to recover from that. But, uh, my wife wouldn't let me bring the Ouija board back home after that, so I had to leave it in the wrecked car. 
Yeah, I don't blame her. Uh, you don't know what's going on with those things. And uh, is it weird to you that you can buy like a Ouija board at just like Target? Yeah, it, it's the fact that it was, it's always been sort of this fearful, terrifying, you know, occult item and also something made by Parker Brothers that you could, you know, pick up at Toys R Us or whatever. That uh, that's That's a weird dichotomy. Yeah, so no more traveling with the Ouija board, Mike. No more Ouija boards for me. I think I'm I'm good. I'm done with that. So you're done completely with the Ouija board. Oh yeah. Wow. So you do hold a belief. Well, first of all, I'm glad you're okay. Yes. That would be you're doing nothing wrong, just driving along, and then somebody else veers into you head on. But uh, so glad you're okay. But see, I, I feel like I. I I feel like I would have been the opposite. I feel like I would have been like more into the Ouija board at that point because it's showing <laughs> me, a, you know, some sort of proof of existence. Yeah. You know, I uh, my thinking was, well, uh, that was an interesting experience and I don't want to have another one like that. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> better safe than sorry. Now, uh, for, forgive the p- potential uh, insensitivity of this question, but Not now, at all. if you had passed away during that accident, do you think you would have haunted other ghost podcasters? Well, you know, my my fondest desire um, would be, because I give ghost tours for a living. Mm-hmm. So if, if I had my way, I would end up a, a story on the ghost tour. Really? That's after what, I'm gone. That's what you want? Oh, yes, Absolutely. All right. Well, that's not bad. Because that's I mean, its own. If you think about it, is it's its own sort of immortality. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure thing. I mean, I would love to have been part of the uh, Salem witch trials, so I could have been, you know, mentioned hundreds of years <laughs> later in in Salem on these. Uh, I would have loved to have been crushed by rocks. Is I what can I'm saying. burn you at the stake out in the parking lot. No, we can do the rock thing. There's a lot of rocks out there. Let's do it. We'll stone you. Yep. <laughs> yeah. If you get the Giles Corey treatment, Giles Corey, people will remember that. Good. Nice. I'm, I'm glad you remembered that. Have you been to Salem yet? Because you uh, talked about wanting to go to Salem, and you said uh, if you got a chance that we'd hook up and we maybe would do a live show in Salem. Um, we have well, uh, actually, the a while um, in oh, what I think it was August of 2017, August of last year. That's right. Yeah, I, I went to your your live show uh, with right. the nighttime podcast in um, in Somerville. And, uh, and then the, for the rest of the weekend, I spent the weekend in Salem and I loved it. I, if, if I could live somewhere other than Charleston, it would be Salem. And I, I spent some time hanging out with, uh, Allison Horrocks from the strange and unusual podcast. And I, I did a two part episode based on, on my time there. Cool. What was your favorite part of Salem? My favorite part of Salem probably wasn't in Salem itself. My favorite part of Salem was going to Danvers mm-hmm. to see the Samuel Paris historic site, which is the, the site, of course, where the first two girls started displaying symptoms of, of whatever was wrong with them. And, and that's sort of where the chain of events began to unfold that led to the Salem witch trials. But it's this little historic site hidden away in this neighborhood behind some houses. And you kind of have to know that it's there to find it. And fortunately, I had somebody with me that knew where it was. Well, that's awesome. Because Salem back then was technically part of, I mean, Danvers was, was uh, Salem was Danvers. So it was uh, all, all that area was part of the witch trials and mm-hmm. the scene for uh, 
the crucible and the most boring play in the history of uh, literature <laughs> based on the most disturbing moment in, you know one of the most disturbing <laughs> moments yeah, the, in history the true life story is not boring the uh, the crucible is uh, painfully boring um maybe i i sound uh, like an idiot when i say that but i don't care uh, i'm not i'm sure i'm not alone <laughs> yeah, yeah he's too good for arthur miller no arthur arthur miller is clearly a talent but uh give me a break please <laughs> Well, next time you're in the area, look us up. Let's uh, let's hook up. It's really the assigned reading of the Crucible. I uh, think you're still on that. Yeah, because you know I grew up in in uh, Eastern Massachusetts, and you get assigned. You got to read the Crucible, and, and no one wants to read what you're told to read. I don't know. I I was uh, I was a big avid uh, assigned reader fan. Ugh. Mike, <laughs> you? No, I, I hate being forced to read things I don't want to. Thank you, Lance. You're outnumbered. I like to be forced to do anything I don't want to. <laughs> So, um, so why Charleston? You now you say you do ghost tours uh, in in Charleston, South Carolina. Why is that your hub? Well, I was born here, so I, I didn't get a lot. <laughs> I uh, I didn't get a lot of choice in that. We weren't born in the studio, Mike. <laughs> but I uh, I I love Charleston, and uh, you know I I grew up here, and growing up here, and I don't know if this is if you feel the same way uh, about Massachusetts, but. You know, I sort of took it, the history of Charleston for granted growing up here. I didn't really think about it much. And then after I graduated high school, I joined the Navy and I went off to California. And that was when I first sort of developed an interest in history and really sort of missed uh, the history of Charleston and, and just sort of how, you know, out there it was. And, and it was just all around you and immersive. And so... When I got out of the Navy, I moved back to Charleston and um, very soon after that, got a job working as a tour guide. So I've been doing it for a few decades now, and I really enjoy it. When did the ghost tour part of your work uh, take over? Well, you know, initially I didn't have any interest in ghost stories at all. I was I was strictly a, a history person. I went, I worked for a tour company at one point, and two of the guys there were writing a book of Charleston ghost stories, which at that time was something that no one had really done uh, since I think maybe the 1960s. One day they went to a fire station uh, that is supposed to be haunted and they were going to interview one of the firemen that worked there. And I was just hanging around the office and just tagged along with him for lack of anything better to do. And that was where I sort of got my first experience of walking through an old building with especially with somebody who's familiar with it and getting the history of it and hearing the in, stories about what happened to them there and uh, I sort of fell in love with that type of history that mixes not only the regular history but also folklore and in these sort of creepy ghost encounters and from that point on I ghost stories kind of became a a big interest of mine. And how did you get the title Pleasing Terrors? Well, the, it's actually a literary reference. Um, there is a, the man who is considered to be the father of the English ghost story, which Arthur by Miller. proxy would make him the father of the American ghost story, is a writer by the name of M.R. James. And M.R. James um, who came up with a series of rules about um how you should tell a ghost story. What are the rules of the ghost story? And one of his rules, uh, I think sort of the penultimate rule was that, um, 
a ghost story should leave the listener with a sense of pleasing terror. Okay. What? So that was where I got the idea for the name. Awesome. What's the difference between a pleasing terror and a non-pleasing terror? Well, it, just, it should, in essence, what he was saying is that the ghost stories from his perspective are supposed to be entertaining. And they shouldn't be, um, they shouldn't be actually upsetting, you know, uh, mm. I mean, it, it's, it's all supposed to be fun to listen to. It shouldn't be something that, that harms the person that you tell it to. Right. And you try to work in some, some, uh, modern day, I guess, fairy tale morals into, into your telling of the stories, right? Yeah, that, um, that's something, obviously I can't do that on the tour because the stories have to be so short. But, right. um, one of the things I love about the podcast is that it gives, it's given me the opportunity to sort of experiment a little bit. And, and the thing I love doing most of all, the, the stories that I love best are the stories that can combine, uh, different things, things that might at first glance not seem to go together, but you can if you can mix them just right by the time you're finished with the story, then the listener will think, Oh, of course that fits together, obviously. And, um, I, I love, love doing that. So you're more of a, uh, your, your passion comes more from a sense of like telling a proper story and yes. entertaining the, the listener or your guests on a tour, as opposed to being successful in scaring them. Well, you know, usually one thing goes with the other, okay. um, depending on the type of story that you're telling. Certainly on the tour, it's more inf the emphasis is more on creeping people out. With the podcast, it's it can veer away from that. But um, but yeah, my my first priority is is just storytelling. So now Charleston seems to be a particularly haunted area if uh if you are to believe in that um yes. what, what is it about charleston that makes it particularly haunted well i get asked that question a lot Ugh, on the ghost tour sorry and no not at all and it's a great question and the best answer that i've ever been able to come up with is that you have a city like charleston and, and this is not exclusive to charleston but charleston is a good example of it you have a city where you have it's an, a relatively old city, especially in American terms, over 300 years. And you have a city that's had a traumatic, violent history, you know, a, a history of earthquakes and fires and hurricanes and wars. You name it, if it's bad, it's happened at Charleston at some point. You know, not even getting into, you know, the man-made horrors, you know, like slavery and, and things like that. And, and just all this horrible stuff. And then you combine that with a city that's sort of obsessed with itself and has always been obsessed with itself and has meticulously cataloged all this minutia over hundreds of years and collected it in libraries so that you can have access to it. And so it's like the perfect recipe for a, a haunted city because you, you have all of this history and folklore and, and combined with still existing old buildings, you know, when you when you have all those ingredients, it's hard to imagine that you wouldn't have ghost stories. I imagine just like Salem, 
walking down the streets of uh, of Charleston is is similar where you're looking at the buildings and they almost become these characters in themselves in your stories they have a personality and the way yes. you're describing it is uh is really um sounds like a really special area yes it, yeah yeah it does and the the buildings do seem to have their own personality you know it's almost like the buildings are the permanent things and the people passing through them are just temporary Speaking of buildings, that was my ham-handed way to segue into buildings being something that can that can resonate, uh, you know, evil, evil, uh, evil, <laughs> evil mm-hmm. energy. Um, do you have buildings that you think of that you just don't want to be alone in at night? Well, the most evil building in Charleston is uh, it's it's interesting. Because one that like literally radiates a sense of evil is uh, the building that I was actually the first person to ever spend the night in alone. Really? Give it to us. Yeah, tell us about that. Well, it's called the Old City Jail, the Charleston Old City Jail. It is like a something out of a Stephen King novel. It the the site where the building stands was originally in the early 1700s. It was a place known as the Old Burying Ground. And it was a place where outside the city at the time where they would bury criminals and strangers, people that for whatever reason couldn't be buried in one of the church graveyards. And then in 1740, on top of that old graveyard, without moving any of the remains, they built a warehouse to store gunpowder because they were worried keeping large quantities of gunpowder at one location in the city was dangerous because of the the prevalence of fires at the time, because there were so many wooden buildings, and it's a breezy peninsula, and fires were very common. Valid concern. And so they wanted to have the gunpowder separate. And so um, they built this warehouse on top of this creepy old graveyard, and they move all the gunpowder out there, which is a smart choice. But because 40 years later, during the American Revolution, uh, there's a horrible accident, and that warehouse explodes, and it kills over 200 people and destroys everything for a block around it. And on that site, again, in 1802, they build this Gothic jail, which is designed specifically to look scary, because they have this notion that if the jail looks scary, people won't commit crimes. And of course, that's Mission accomplished on that. Looking at the pictures of this jail, it's like you really can't, uh, looks like you really can't, uh, walk past it without getting some sense of, uh, you know, <laughs> some sense. I mean, of literally, if there is a right. central casting for haunted locations, you know, yeah. that jail would be a part of it. It would be working it a is, lot. It is almost cartoonishly creepy. Yeah. Well, before you started telling the story, I was looking at it and I was just thinking to myself, like, they didn't have to build it to look like that. Like they, yeah, they probably had other design uh, influences at the time. You know, you don't have to build it to look like a, uh, like a, literally having horns coming out of its head. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, it, continue. But yeah, so this jail is not just a place of confinement. They also torture people there. They execute people there. Even the people just serving out their time. Live, are living in these horrific conditions in terms of sanitary conditions. I mean, it, it is a nightmare place. And it would 
continued to be functioning all the way up until 1939. I mean, the conditions moderated by 1939, but it was it was especially in its early days, it was just a horrible, horrible place. And so, in 1939, the jail closes, and then it just sits there, empty. And this neighborhood just kind of fills in around it. And so you have people literally, you know, if you imagine like in your normal s- suburban subdivision, the distance between one house and another, you know, that sort of that level of closeness, you have houses that are that close to that jail, people that can just look out their window and it's right there across the yard. That building just sat there unused until like 1999, 2000. But um, the sightings in that jail go all the way back to the Civil War. And I came across this years and years ago, back when I first started researching the ghost history or ghost legends and folklore, I should say. But there was a group of U.S. Army soldiers that were POWs during the Civil War that were imprisoned in the jail. And one night they are trying to escape and they are, unbeknownst to the Confederates, they're chiseling at the walls of their cell, prying the bricks loose, sort of a Shawshank Redemption style. And they work at night, and one of them is the lookout, and he's standing at the door. And uh, he sig- senses there's somebody out in the hallway, so he gives the signal. Everybody stops working. And he um, he just stands there watching, and he expects to see one of the guards. And he's surprised to see this woman in a white dress out in the hallway. And she doesn't look at him. She just walks past that cell door, and then she's gone, disappearing into the shadows at the other end of the hall. And something as, as benign as that encounter sounds, something about it bothered him so much that years later, when he was being interviewed by a writer who was writing a book about the war, out of all the things that he had experienced, combat, captivity, things like, you know, just the horrors of war, the thing that stuck with him, and he just couldn't wrap his brain around was this seemingly, uh, you know, benign encounter with this woman in the jail in the middle of the night. And he mentioned it to the writer who thought, oh, that's kind of an interesting story. And so he included it in his book. And that's where I came across it. So was there any indication as to the identity of this woman? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, But the, the encounters with a woman in a white dress in that jail continue all the way up to the current day. And it is the belief that it is the ghost of a a woman by the name of Lavinia Fisher, who traditionally was considered to be the first white woman to be executed in South Carolina. She was also believed uh, to be the first female serial killer in the United States. Now you're talking. This is good. So the first serial killer in the United States was a product of Charleston, South Carolina, and she was executed in that jail. And now she's yes, a now ghost. That's the that's the the belief. There there's it's more complex than that. Oh, oh, is it? Yes. Um Lavinia Fisher is sort of is to Charleston. She she is sort of the center of Charleston folklore. And uh you know, there are as many versions of her story as there are tour guides that tell it. Um, but the the truth of the, the story, and I, I did a two-part episode on this, because I, like, I, as I mentioned, I spent the night inside the jail 
which I did that in February of last year. That was something that no one had ever really done before, um, at least not alone. People had spent the night there, but in groups. But I was the first person to do it by myself. And um, in the episode where I did that and I talked about that experience, I also talked about the story of Lavinia Fisher. It, it turns out in 2010, there was a, a local author uh, who named Bruce Orr who wrote a book about Lavinia Fisher. And while he was researching that book, he went to Nor- he went to North Carolina and went through some family records there and buried in those records, he found a piece of paper that sort of turned that story on its head. And, and the story was that Lavinia Fisher and her husband owned an inn out in the woods outside of Charleston, and that in 1819, there were stories about these this area of woods north of the city, and that people were being attacked, and they were being robbed, and there were rumors that people were disappearing there, getting murdered. And eventually, one night, a man comes into town and says that he stopped in an inn in those woods, and the proprietors of the inn tried to kill him. And so this mob goes out to the inn and they arrest uh, the couple that owns it, John and Lavinia Fisher. And they're brought into town and they're put on trial and they're, they find two bodies in the woods near the end, two sets of human remains. But there were later rumors that there were many, many more sets of remains found in the woods beside the inn in the in a cellar underneath the inn. And, um, that's how the, this story of her being a serial killer got started. And, and it's, it seemed to zero in on her, not on her husband. But um, in 2010, this author, in doing some research in North Carolina, finds a piece of paper buried in some family records that kind of turns that whole thing on its head. Because it turns out Lavinia Fisher, who is thought of as the first white woman to be executed in South Carolina was not the first white woman to be executed in South Carolina. She was actually of mixed race. And it turns out that she was most likely not a serial killer. Lavinia Fisher's mother was enslaved. And it turns out she was enslaved as well. And what that author had found was basically a receipt, a bill of sale, from 1810 for the sale of an 18-year-old girl named Lavinia Fisher, who was being sold uh, by a family in North Carolina to called the Fishers, to a doctor in Charleston. And the reason that family was selling her was because a son in that family named John Fisher had begun a romantic relationship with her and they wanted to break them up. But the son followed her to Charleston and the two of them ran off and they basically ended up living in this house out in the woods where this inn was. And um, later on, the uh, years later, in fact, they um, the powers that be in Charleston one of the theories that, that this author talked about was that the powers that be in Charleston wanted to basically get all this land that was out there in the woods because they wanted to set up some kind of government contract or something. And so they basically began um, terrorizing the people that lived there. They were kind of squatters living out in, the, in these woods. And uh, one easy way to do that was to drum up the people in the city by accusing the people that lived in the woods of being murderers and robbers. And so a mob went out there and started burning down people's houses. The people defended themselves as best they could. And that was when this, this merchant got attacked by them. And so the fishers ended up becoming the scapegoats for this whole thing. Um, so it seems the, the historical reality is she was sort of framed as being a serial killer. And um, 
and was exe- was innocent and, w- and was, you know, executed for something she didn't do. And sort of the premise of the story that I was telling in the podcast episode was that, and what I found interesting about it was that here you have someone sort of talking about a story in a prison uh, or in a jail, and you have someone that not only was physically imprisoned, but, you know, in essence, their their memory is trapped in this sort of folklore prison, which remembers her as a, a serial killer. And uh, when, in fact, she was innocent. So it's like she's been victimized twice. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Sometime in the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks. And he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across. But nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnumtown. Varnumtown is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, this leads to some questions about the existence of ghosts and why they are ghosts. And you kind of went into it nicely there. We always hear stories about ghosts being spirits that are left in a state of unrest or they met an untimely end. Therefore, they don't uh, they they have to finish uh, business or, you know, they're Mm -hmm. they're in limbo. Uh, Two questions. Are you actually a believer in ghosts? And. Do you think that uh, this case with Miss Fisher was something like that, where she felt that justice wasn't done uh, properly to her? Well, you know, the punchline on the Lavinia Fisher story is that as she was being executed, and this is true, this is true, is that um, she was her both her husband and a minister on the gallows with 500 people watching asked her to pray and she refused And her final words were, if you have any messages to send to hell, give it to me and I'll carry it. So she was a badass. Yeah, that's I mean, you don't get much more of a badass, you know, exit line than that. Yeah, that's pretty badass. Good. How was she executed? Hanged. She was hanged. 
Wow. That is really a, a, a wild story. So do you think that all that trauma in her life created some like manifestation right some like negative energy is that is that how well yeah that would be i think that would be the prevalent theory and and, you know a part of that a part of that is to answer lance's question is i think our desire the living human desire to attach meaning Mm -hmm. you know define meaning we don't like what i think you know one of the things that terrifies us more and i think one of you even mentioned that about my car accident was how scary that is when when just something random happens, you know, something out of your control. And, um, you know, that tends to terrify us more than anything. And so I, one, of the, one of the sort of ironic things about scary stories and ghost stories and horror in general is it's a way for us to take horrible things and, and attach meaning to them and purpose to them and intent to them. And um, I, I think that's one of the functions of ghost stories. Even if you don't believe them from like a sociological perspective, I think that's one of the functions of ghost stories is it's a way for us to attach meaning to death. Sure. And make it comprehensible. Sure. But but what about you? Do, do you believe in ghosts? Well, you know, I never had a strong opinion on it either way. And when I, I first started doing ghost stories, when I first started giving ghost tours, my initial real thought was, I don't know if I can do this because I don't think I believe in ghosts. But over the years, and, and I've been giving ghost tours for 23 years now, I've met at this point in, in the very least hundreds of people, if not thousands of people, um, that have talked to me on the tour about the things that they experienced. And not the, you know, not the person that comes on the tour and tells me, oh, I'm a psychic and I've talked to ghosts all the time. It's just the regular, ordinary person who often starts by saying, I don't believe in ghosts, but this weird thing happened to me one time. Mm-hmm. And they tell you these really genuine, believable stories that don't really have a, a rational explanation, or at least not one that's easy to discern. And, um, you know, you get a few of those and you think, okay, whatever. But, you know, after 100 of them or 200 of them, you know, it, you're cynicism starts to wear out, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I've become a believer over the years. Um, A believer, you know, and I I don't know that my belief has any exact uh, or specific parameters. Right. Um, I'm always, I always get a little irritated when I hear, and you see this a lot on the ghost shows on TV, and, and you see this certainly with, among some people that give ghost tours, where they they start talking, you know, in definitive terms about, well, ghosts are this and they do this and they're called this and they, you know, you know, acting like there's there's some commonly accepted understanding of, of how all this works when there's not. So I would say, yeah, I, I believe in sort of a general open sense that there's something going on, but I don't I don't attach any specific parameters to that. So did you end up seeing something when you were staying uh, alone in this old prison? Well, you know, let me tell you, that was really intense. Um, you know, one of the, one of my motives for going in there that night was that uh, kind of like I would just mentioned over all these years, I, I listened to people tell me about their experiences and I'm not a particularly sensitive person when it comes to that kind of thing. Um, but I've been in the presence of people having experiences before on the tour. And, um, but I didn't feel anything or see anything. 
And so one of my goals and one of my motivations for going in the jail that night alone, especially, was I wanted to be in this super, you know, what is supposed to be a super haunted, super creepy place with no filters. You know, there's there's nothing between me and experiencing whatever is going on in this place. And um, there was a lot of weird stuff that happened that night. I can definitely say that. Um, definitely, I heard a lot of things. Um, I thought I saw something on one occasion. I thought I saw some someone at the end of a particular hallway. But um, at that point, I was kind of getting so freaked out that I didn't want to push it anymore. <laughs> so I, uh, I, you know, I'd, I'd been hearing you know, doors moving and things like that. Um, and there were weird banging noises when I was in this building. Uh, but at one point I come to this one hallway, which is kind of the worst part of the jail for the ghost stories. And I, I get to this door and it's just a dark hallway. It's just me and my flashlight. And at the other end of it, I think I see someone there and I just said, Nope, that's it. I'm, I'm not going <laughs> further. What did you see? I thought I saw something, someone, it looked like a, person moving at the end of the hallway how far down oh i don't know 50 60 feet so did did you like did did it scare you to your core did you just like "Ah, i'm not or just just like nah this ain't worth it i'm I'm, yeah yeah well sort of both it just stopped me in my tracks and i was like nope i'm not going down there not playing because that that and and see in this sense and in in this sense my knowledge is sort of working against me when I'm alone in the jail because I, 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 before I'm going there that night, I've studied the building so much and its history so much that I know all these really horrifying details. You know, I can point to a place at the bottom of the staircase and tell and know, and know that a teenage boy was murdered there during the civil war, or I can look point at a room and know that that room, they used to torture people in there by uh, sealing prisoners in, because one of the things they did at the jail was they made coffins. And one of the ways they would sometimes torture people is they would lock them in, uh, seal them in a coffin for days at a time, basically until their mind just completely shattered. So I feel when um, I'm in the studio with Tim. (laughs) (laughs) So... So if you can imagine when you know, when you know all these horrible things about a place and you're there alone at night and I mean, your, your own brain becomes your worst enemy to some extent. So it, it freaked you out in a way, but like, uh, but you were so researched on this, like, you know, the chances of the, like some kind of apparition physically harming you in some way is not really likely like, well, interestingly enough did you bring any that, weapons with you too that same thought? night that very same night like because uh, they give tours of that jail at night and so um, I showed up a little early and I was there for the final tour of the night before the jail closed and I would be left there alone and uh, like 15 minutes before that tour ended I was with the tour group and they're in this room uh, towards the front of the building, uh, where, where you would go upstairs. And, uh, there is a group of people standing in the, uh, in this room all together. And it's February. So people are, you know, everybody's, you know, wearing long pants and, and whatnot. I mean, they're not, nobody's in shorts or anything. And, and that's significant because in part of this group is a teenage girl who's wearing jeans. She's standing in the middle of this group of people and, 
all of a sudden she starts screaming and grabbing her leg. And her mother pulls her into another room and then comes back a few minutes later and she has three scratch marks all the way down the inside of her leg from her thigh all the way down to her ankle. And, uh, this is the getting these scratch marks is a, something that happens there. It is. And it's kind of one of those things. Like if you, people say, Oh yeah, I got scratched in there. You're just like, okay, whatever. But then, then you see it and her mother took pictures of the scratches with her camera. And, uh, that made a real impression, especially 15 minutes before I was going to be left alone in there for the night. (laughs) I I bet. What happened after that? So the mom takes her into the room. Uh, she comes out with pictures of her daughter's leg that's scratched. You're looking at it. You're like, I'm going to be in here alone in 15 minutes. Uh, what did the other people on the tour do? What did you do? What did the tour guys do? They were freaking out. I think everybody was freaking out. Basically at that point it was over with and everybody left. And, and I, I stood around talking with the two, two of the guides that work in the jail. And, uh, I, I was sort of, I, I, I think I was trying to keep them talking so they wouldn't leave. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, eventually they were like, well, it's time for us to go. And I was like, oh, great. And, uh, and then I was on my own after that. So now the, the skeptic in me will say uh, that this girl who was scratched and her mom took her into the separate room, like maybe her mom did the scratches in that separate room and then they came back and, and uh, you know, showed these scratches. But I know you said that you've, uh, you know, th- that other people have been scratched in that, um, that spot. Yeah, so. it's, it's, it's something that's happened on numerous occasions. Normally I'm, I'm, I start when, when somebody tells me that they saw a ghost, I, I naturally start from a, a, a point of skepticism. You know, even after all these years, um, when they're telling me, oh, this thing happened to me, my brain is, set, is sort of filing through, okay, well, what else could it be? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, you know, there's something about being there and seeing it with your own eyes. And now I, I, I can't say whether that's, you know, lends credibility or takes away credibility because you're, you're experiencing it. So maybe you're, you're, you know, less likely to be skeptical because you're sort of there and you're part of this experience. I don't know, but, um, it sure was believable to me. Yeah. It's hard to say what the power of suggestion will do when you're in that environment. Right. I'm surprised that you didn't have, unless you haven't shared them, you didn't have more of those moments where your imagination got the better of you over the course of the night. Well, and that may be the, uh, yeah, I, I don't, you know, I certainly don't, um, discount that. And, um, but you know, my, my frame of reference and I, and I always tell people this on the tour is I'm not here to prove anything to anyone. Um, I'm just here to, you know, in, in the case of, I'm here, normally I'm here to tell a story or I, and I'm, if in the case of my night in the jail, I'm, the story is about this is my night in the jail. This is what I experienced. Uh, make of it what you will. And um, that's that's the position I tend to be most comfortable with. I, I don't I don't want to be in the position of trying to convince people to believe in something. And I always people will tell me on the tour, oh, I don't believe in ghosts. And I always say, well, you don't have to believe in ghosts to enjoy a ghost story. Yeah, and they're there for some reason. There must be some uncertainty, uh, or they're at least interested in the story aspect. Um, here's a question for you. So 
ghosts, assuming they're real, is this a product of religion or science? And let me boil that down a little further. Is this proof of the afterlife or proof of parapsychology being a real thing? You know, I don't know. Now, I always make a distinction between ghost and ghost stories. Like, for example, you know, a lot of the stuff you see with the ghost hunting TV shows and stuff like that. Personally, I don't find a lot of that to be very credible. And, uh, you know, the measuring things with meters and, and equipment and all of that, I, that's never been something that I've really had much interest in. I don't, I, I think the science on a lot of that is pretty dubious. What I find interesting is the ghost, are the ghost stories. And I, I think what those tell us is they tell us more about the ourselves than the people that we've lost. Um, one of the, the most recent episode of the podcast that I did was about Harry Houdini. And, um, it was called the title of the episode was true ghosts. And specifically it focused on one of the things that I, I've just found so fascinating about Harry Houdini was here you had a guy who was so close to his mother and he was he was so profoundly affected by her loss. I mean, to the extent that he would go and, and at night and lay down on her grave. You know, he that's how how shattered he was by the death of his mother. And he so desperately wants to believe in the the afterlife and in ghosts and in spiritualism because that would that would mean that his mother is still there in a sense and that he he can be reunited reunited with her at some point but the tra- and that's what he wants in his heart but in the training of his mind in in the creating of illusions you know he he is so easily able to pierce illusions and discern uh fraud that that he keeps going to these mediums one after another and he can see that they're fakes. And I, I've, I just found that, that conflict there between what he wants in his heart and what his brain is training is telling him, um, to be fascinating. But sort of the whole point of the episode was, and the reason for the title of the episode was that, um, and the focus of it was, of course, I don't know if you, or how much you know about the history of Houdini, but he died in 1926, and then for 10 years afterwards, his wife would hold a seance on Halloween, the anniversary of his death, trying to contact her husband. And it was a big media event every year on Halloween. And, you know, we often talk about, and I think one of you mentioned this earlier, we, we talk about the ghost as being the spirits of people who have unfinished business and who can't leave their old life behind, and they just can't let go. And sort of the the thesis of that particular episode was that the true ghost are are not the spirits of the people who have died. They're the spirits of the people who remain behind that are unable to let go of the past and unable to give up on things. And I, I think that that's sort of at the heart of ghost stories and why we're fascinated with ghost stories and why uh, so many people want to believe in ghosts. Do you think that that's a little bit of a causality, if you will, that the yes. reason they exist is because we we, we need, need them, them to, to exist? Yeah, that's wow. We just solved a lot. Which of, doesn't mean of that they right don't now. exist. It just means that you know, it's I'm not I'm not saying yes or no. What I'm not saying that there are ghosts or there aren't ghosts. You know, there's a lot of things out there that are hard to explain. But I'm saying that that ghost stories are proof of the fact 
that whether ghosts are real or not, we, we need them to be real and we want them to be real. At least a lot of us do. Yeah, that's a good point. Some of the things that uh, I find most unnerving are the simple things. Like you said, you, you thought that you saw somebody down the hall and it was somebody who moved. Like it might have been a person who moved. Now, mm-hmm. some people might have a story where it's this crazy thing where – you know, saw somebody walking upside down on the ceiling and was running at me. Uh, that doesn't really unnerve me as much as the subtlety in uh, your story about possibly seeing something move down a hallway and you were just like, that's enough for me. Uh, I always wonder what I would do in that situation. I think you had a really unique opportunity to spend the night in a classically, famously haunted location and... And uh, you did as much as you could when you were there. Uh, would you ever go back? Um, I don't know. Um, probably, maybe. I did go back once to, to do uh, another episode. I went back to do, well, I, th- I mentioned at the beginning, with a Ouija board. Right. Um, <laughs> so that was sort of upping the ante a little bit. So you went back to that building with the yeah. Ouija yeah, board? Yeah, we did. The, we used a Ouija board in that building. Well, how did that go? He got into a car accident after. Yeah, <laughs> so depending on depending on how you want to look at it, uh, you know it. Uh, and you know, I did a whole episode on Ouija boards, and I did an episode talking about the science of Ouija boards. Sure. You know that it's it's the ideometer effect, and that it's the you know that that when you're using a Ouija board, you're talking to yourself essentially. That your subconscious is manipulating your hand, and you don't realize it, and and so, you know, you think you're talking to a spirit with the Ouija board, but you're really just talking to your subconscious. I did a whole episode on that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, you know, I thought, well, that's, there you go. That's Ouija boards. And so I, that night when we go into the jail and I, I had this Ouija board, it was kind of a nice expensive one. And, um, this couple of listeners to the show, and this was their idea, but, uh, they volunteered to do this and, the thing that I'm looking at when, when I notice the Ouija board and they're using it is that they, you, between their hands and the, the planchette, the, the pointer for the Ouija board, they can't see the letters. You know, they can't, they can, they can see the letters as a whole, but they can't tell, you, you know, whenever this thing moves to a letter and it stops, there's like a little circle, clear circular thing in the middle of it that you have to look through to see wh- what letter you've landed on. And, no one can see it until the thing stops and everybody leans forward to see if am I on the letter M or I on the letter N. You know, you can't tell. Mm-hmm. And so I said, the thing that kind of surprised me about that, I was like, well, I don't know how your subconscious knows. How does your subconscious, if it, even if it can tell you what, what, you know, what if it's communicating with you, how does it know where the right letter is? You know, how does it know where to stop? Sure. And and never get a letter wrong. Hmm. You know, and uh, that was that one kind of brought me back. So I was like, well, I don't know now. You know, I suddenly it's something I thought was clear is less clear. Did anything happen at the site when you were using it? I know the car accident happened after, but what about during the seance? Yes. Well, we did we did some research, some seance, you know, some like Ouija board research before we went in there because I'd never used one before. I find that surprising that you'd never used a Ouija board. No, I, I never. Uh, honestly, I was always kind of creeped out by them, <laughs> but uh, but uh, I never used one. And 
one of the things that we we read about was that uh, you know part of the Ouija board folklore is that um, is you have to know how to close the board. You know, you, if you're using a Ouija board and you're talking to someone, you don't just stop because supposedly that leaves a connection open to whatever you're talking to. And so what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to close the board. And that means you say goodbye and then you pull the planchette to the word goodbye. And supposedly that severs the connection. Hmm. And we thought, okay, fine. And, and one of the things they talk about in Ouija board folklore and is that that's important closing the board if something goes wrong. If you're talking to something and it becomes angry or hostile, you're supposed to close the board right away. And sort of your worst case scenario was if you're if something becomes angry or hostile and that planchette goes to the end of the numbers or the end of the letters and starts going backwards through the alphabet or backwards through the numbers. In Ouija board folklore, that was supposed to mean that whatever you're talking to is trying to use the board to attach itself to one of the people there. And so that was like your red alert moment. You're supposed to immediately close the board if that happens. So we read up on all of that. We didn't really attach any particular significance to, you know, all these Ouija board rules. And I, we go in there that night and this couple, James and Jordan, who have volunteered to be guinea pigs with this. And I had this, I had this Ouija board, which I had gotten just more or less for decoration than anything else. I never meant to use it. But um, it was this nice handmade one. And the thing gave me the creeps from the moment I got it. It, uh, frankly, it just it bothered me. And so it was like I spent too much money on it. I didn't want to throw it away, but I didn't want to actually look at it. So I kind of <laughs> stuck it behind a door. But I had it. And so uh, I took it to the jail that night. And we go into the worst room in the jail. There's one room in the jail that the people who give tours there don't go in. They call it the creepy door room. And yeah. they keep the door closed and they just stay away from it. So, of course, that's the room we go in with the Ouija board. And uh, there's nothing in it. There is just this couple, James and Jordan, are sitting there in these two fold-out chairs facing each other, the Ouija board in their laps, and I'm Facebook living it. So there's actually <laughs> videos of this in the Facebook group for the podcast. But uh, I'm Facebook living it. So... James starts asking questions. Is there anyone there? Is there anyone that wants to talk to us? And after a couple of minutes, the planchette moves to the word yes. And then he asks, are you alone? And it moves to the word no. And then he asks, what do you want? And it spells out the word free. And at that point, James starts complaining that he feels nauseous, that he feels sick. And so they close the board and we go outside of the jail for half an hour. 30 minutes later, we come back in to do, do it again. And that first session had lasted only about six minutes, a little over six minutes. The second one would only last a little over four minutes before it went horribly wrong. And now Jordan is doing the talking and she starts asking questions. But now the planchette is going to these random letters and numbers. It's not making any sense. And it's a couple of minutes before it finally spells out a word. And the word that it spells out is James. The other guy who was with you who just The other said guy that, he that felt had been using the board previously. Okay. And uh, James starts freaking out at that point. Why? He says, I want to quit. And the planchette goes to the word no. <laughs> and then it goes to the letter Z and starts going backwards through the alphabet. Ooh. And at that point, trying they to close attach it right itself, away. Trying to attach itself presumably to James. 
Yeah. So yeah, if, if, if you believe in those things, so, but you know, again, saying, you know, deciding whether or not you believe in those things, you know, sort of like in the comfort of your home in the middle of the afternoon is one thing, you know, standing in the creepy door room at two o'clock in the morning as the Ouija board is moving, you know, that's a different experience. Definitely. And, uh, yeah. So at that point we were done. That was the end of Ouija boards (laughs) in the jail. Oh, you didn't continue that? So no, 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 no. We were, we were done. I would have made, I would have made James stay there. I would have been like, James, you let this spirit attach yourself, attach itself. You (laughs) son of a bitch. You son of a bitch. You let this attach itself to you now. It's for my podcast. So, so the, uh, you know, and then the very next week and and James and Jordan move off to Colorado and seemingly out of range of this evil Ouija board. And the next weekend I'm in this horrific traffic accident. Did they move to Colorado because of the Ouija board? No, no, they were headed there anyways. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> so how long after that were you in the accident? Uh, I was in the accident one week later. Well, well you know, uh, we were in there, you know, the night of Saturday, Sunday, and then the next Sunday, April 29th is when I was in the accident. So maybe the spirit couldn't see the letters all that well. And when it wrote James, it really meant to write Mike. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Did you get any uh, indication or any reason why this person switched lanes and hit you? Never found out. What? Never. I've never, you know, he hit two cars in his lane and then swung into my lane and hit me. And he was going the opposite direction? Yeah. He was in the oncoming lane. Was he okay? Um, He looked like he was injured. I, I was... You know, I only saw him for that where I'm like sitting by the side of the road, you know, all banged up and probably in a little bit of shock. Uh, yeah. But uh, that was the only time I saw him. So but, you, uh, you didn't have an out of body experience, did you? No, it happened. I, I literally I had long enough to say I saw the car and I said to myself, that shouldn't be there. And then <laughs> wham. And the next thing you know, I'm staggering around you know trying to get out of the car and staggering around trying to catch my breath gotcha damn what kind of car was it uh my car was a jetta the car that hit that hit you what was that oh it was like an suv of some kind i don't i don't know what oh man i'm trying to find clues here (laughs) (laughs) so you know it's uh i tend to be more of a glass half full type person so you know, the, the, all the first responders there were telling me that I was lucky to have survived it. And, um, I was, you know, I was like, well that, you know, that sounds good to me. But I had, when I got back to Charleston, there were a few messages from people saying, see, that's what happens when you mess with Ouija boards. (laughs) But if it really was the Ouija board, wouldn't it just have killed you? Because then it would have owned your soul, right? Or am I thinking this the wrong way? Or they need you On the as other the hand, conduit. that would have made for a hell of a ghost story. <laughs> Unless you are a ghost right now. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Lance, you, you just, nailed it. You just sixth sense wait, the world. Wait a second. This Skype line isn't even... My Skype isn't even on. How are we communicating? <laughs> the computer's, not even, yeah. computer's not even plugged in. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, so when are you going back to the jail? Um, well, here's... And here is the, uh, the sort of the funny punchline of the jail story. The jail is actually owned by a developer. And as of right now, at the end of the year, the jail will close to the public and the developer will be converting the building into rental office space. I have a really bad feeling about this rental developer and his future in the world. 
<laughs> I don't think he should be messing around with this building. Are you going to get an office in this building? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> don't you just think that the, doesn't this feel like the plot of some like uh, who's the guy who wrote Scream? Kevin Williamson. Uh, Kevin Williamson, like you know, yeah, like it's big like time real estate guys coming in. Yeah, it's like the deconstruction of the genre and then builds it back up yeah. into something a little different. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> Got a screenplay idea for you there, Mike. <laughs> um, other than that building, other than which, uh, that was a really great story. Didn't think that we were going to go in that direction. Is there any other building that you would like to go into as part of research for your show? Would you ever do something like that? Well, I'm getting ready to do one, um, which is I'm kind of looking forward to, is there's a, a building, a, a very historic building called the Exchange Building in Provost Dungeon. It's a ah, yes. one of those buildings that you see a lot of in places like Boston and Philadelphia. You know, it's it's a building that George Washington was entertained in, and they read the Declaration of Independence to the people of Charleston from the steps of the building. And... Uh, but it, you know, so it has uh, up above ground, it has this sort of bright colonial American history. Below ground, you have the dungeon, which is, uh, you know, there's some debate, historically speaking, how awful things were down there. But, you know, the building does sit on the site of a, of a place where a man named Steed Bonnet, who was known as the gentleman pirate, he was a contemporary and partner of Blackbeard. And uh, he was captured and imprisoned there and went insane inside of the, the, you know, the, the building that was there at the time and uh, then was later executed. And so on that site is now this dungeon, which was used to imprison people during the Revolutionary War. And um, so, and there are lots of ghost stories attached to this dungeon, you know, shadows on the walls and and people being down there and an elevator door opens and there's a shadowy person there. And, and it's filled with uh, wax figures of doing like these different historical uh, displays of wax figures. Yeah. It's creepy enough. Yeah. So, so it's like the, it's like a creepy historic dark build, you know, room, giant room, kind of a basement with filled with all these different wax figures from different, you know, build periods of the building's history. Um, but it's a very creepy dungeon. And so uh, one of the in a couple of weeks, one of the things I'm going to be doing is we're going to be going down there with a, a local uh, group of, of people that have played Dungeons and Dragons. And they're going to play Dungeons and Dragons inside a haunted dungeon. Do not do this. <laughs> do not do this. <laughs> so <laughs> you just need to summon the dragon with the Ouija board, Mike. So that's my uh, that's my next big adventure. <laughs> um, uh, last question I got here is uh, why so many pirates involved in ghost stories? Why so many haunted uh, pirate stories? Well, Charleston, at least from Charleston point of view, Charleston has a lot of pirate history, mm -hmm. um, more so right? than probably any other American city. I was think. it wasn't Blackbeard uh, trapped and killed there, if I'm not mistaken? No, he was he he blockaded Charleston Harbor That's in right. 1718 and uh, basically forced the city to pay a ransom. And uh, so interesting thing about that interesting side story is he didn't really want money. What he wanted was uh, medicine. And uh, so they gave him these trunks of medicine. And then, you know, uh, I don't know, 20 years ago, maybe they found Blackbeard's ship off the coast of Ocracoke Island mm -hmm. in North Carolina. 
And one of the items they recovered from the wreck was a metal syringe with traces of mercury on it. Oh, wow. And they think mercury was one of the medicines that the pirates were after. Mm. Um, and they think that they were using the syringe as a catheter to inject themselves with mercury. Wow. Wow. Or to treat a, a venereal disease. Right. Yeah. Syphilis, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, that's what I do. Only I, I use a, uh, it's like just a disposable. Um, <laughs> but, disposable. But, uh, but he was, he was after his blockade of Charleston, an expedition from Virginia tracked him down to Ocracoke Island and fought this big battle with him and killed him and cut off his head and took it back to Virginia and mounted it on a pole. And uh, according to the uh, lo local legend, uh, his skull was later taken and covered in silver and turned into a drinking goblet. Hmm. Oh, okay. That's, That's lovely. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to take a shot. So, you know, that. pirate yeah. stories that ha have endings like that are just natural segues to ghost stories. <laughs> now, okay. Uh, real last question. Were there, are, are there accounts of Blackbeard, uh, his, him and his boat still out in the Harbor in Charleston? There've been stories about that. Um, it, you know, would I be surprised if I heard a, a tour guide saying that? No. Okay. Would I, I believe it? No. I might've just made it up then. Yeah, well, you know, if um, you know, if you don't, someone else will. Yeah, no, I think but, I read uh, it somewhere. Yeah, so I've I've never heard of anything like that. Um, I don't know why he would. Maybe maybe off Ocracoke or something. You know, that would at least from a storytelling standpoint, that would make sense. Right. But I I don't know why he would be at Charleston. Do you ever take liberties in your stories when you're on uh when you're giving a tour? You know, I try to. I try to stick as close to the, I don't want to say truth, but just the, the facts as I understand them as I can. Think about storytelling in terms of tours and ghost tours especially, is that it is an oral tradition. And oral stories, or, oral traditions tend to slide <laughs> over time. Yeah. And, and certainly they, they, because I've trained a lot of people on how to tell ghost stories over the years and how to give ghost stories. And even just, I can, you know, when I go on their tour, I can even see the, the difference, how the story changes from what they heard from me and what they're now saying. Right. You know, you can see the, the, the changes in the story. So, you know, I, I try to keep it as, as credible as possible, but, you know, I will tell you this, the, one of the things that I have, I've always believed, and this is, again, in terms of ghost stories and not ghosts, but um, is I would always tell people that it is more important that a ghost story be believable than that it be true. Oh, very good. Very good. That's how you get the uh, the pleasing part of the pleasing terrors. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Are you ever concerned that you're going to run out of stories? No. Um you know, certainly in Charleston, the, the the tour, you know, in terms of the tour, the stories don't really change all that much. They change a little bit here, a little bit there. It's it's just, you know, by inches every year. In terms of the podcast, um, I I panic about running out of stuff to talk about all the time. But in in my more rational moments, I realize that there's lots and lots of things to talk about.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.